Hi guys, before we get started with this week's episode, we just have a little bit of news for you. Oh yes. We do. The news is that we now have a dedicated section on the official Manchester United app just for our podcast. Maisad Garnet, loving it? Yes, loving it. We know what you're thinking. Why should I move my favourite podcast app all the way over to a new app? Well, two reasons. Reason one is that you will get the podcast a whole 24 hours earlier. I think that's a really good reason. That's 24 hours earlier than everywhere else. And you can be first in line to hear every new episode. Yeah, and reason number two is it allows us to bring you so much more than just the episode. So if we talk about goals, you'll be able to see the goals within the app and you'll also see associated articles and something a lot of people have requested. You'll be able to watch more episodes of the podcast all in one place which to me seems sensational Mm -hmm. but if you're not convinced and want to stay where you are that's fine too we'll still bring you our pods right here every week as usual right here right now but also if you're on the app you won't have to sit through us telling you all this every time that's good yeah because this is going to get repeated if you're listening on something else but not on the app Uh, anyway that's it the official manchester night app now has a podcast section loads going on in there check it out now on with this episode download the app five fa cups Four League Cups, ten Charity Community Shields, one European Cup Winners' Cup, one European Super Cup, two Champions League titles, Intercontinental Cup, one FIFA Club World Cup and 13 Premier League titles. The impossible dream made possible by the greatest British manager ever, Sir Alex Hello and welcome to the Manchester United podcast. I'm Helen Evans. I'm Isaac. Uh, I'm Sam and I assume you're here for one reason and it is the same reason we are all at Old Trafford today sat in a really fancy suite looking at the pitch. Everybody nervous? Just me? Just you probably. Mm. You're not nervous? I was a little bit nervous this morning but mm-hmm. I'm actually okay now. Okay. No, I'm good. Is that because you used to play for him and so you're not, you're calm? Play for who? Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> no, Messi doesn't. Messi doesn't do nerves. I'm looking. Do you know what? Do you know what? I'm really just looking forward to seeing him mm-hmm. healthy looking and mm-hmm. just being in his presence again. It's brilliant. The man's a ledge. Can I ask you, Maisie, Over the go. last twenty years, has there been moments when you've thought, oh, "I'd love to ask Sir Alex that." Uh, yeah, there's there's been a couple of questions where I wanted to ask him. Or wonder what he thinks about certain situations that happened yeah, at your because time. Obviously, I mean, when you're a player, uh, you don't get those. I think because you're in the now, it's just doing your job and that's it, mm-hmm. day in, day out. But I think when you, when you come out of the game and you look back at the game and you look at players and you look at occasions, then that's when you want to ask him questions. And... We've got the perfect opportunity today. Yeah, and uh, a, f- a fair warning, I think, to those of you that listen regularly, um, because it's Sir Alex Ferguson, we could do an hour episode comfortably every week, all year, but we don't have that amount of time with him. So instead of following our usual linear format, we're just sort of, we're going to go for it. We've obviously, we've done lots of research. We all know about him anyway. Um, we're going to try and not ask the usual questions that that's you all know so the answers to. Though, yeah, it's, it? yeah, it's practically impossible, but I guess that's the challenge is to not just keep asking the same stuff but you're setting us up for a fall here Sam no 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 I, I just, everybody's going to be like they ask the well, same cliche questions people might be surprised that we don't ask what seems like obvious questions but because we're going to try and use the time that we've got yeah we don't as have time to as do possible. a chronological yeah lifetime no. story do we no exactly I'll tell you what let's bring him on 
Here he is. Sir Alexander Chapman Ferguson. Two years in the waiting. Okay, we have waited what feels like forever for this moment because in very, very realistic ways, this is much more your podcast than it is ours or even Manchester United's because every story so far from every player has come back to you at its genesis. So Alex Ferguson, welcome to the United podcast. Thank you. Uh, I have one question for you. Uh, I was lucky enough to see you uh, at the end of last season at the Leicester game and I was staring at you. I imagine you felt awkward, so you had to engage with me just because it was a bit weird, I guess. Uh, and you said that you thought the podcast was great, but you said you would only come on if Maisie was sacked. And yet here he sits, and Cutter. so do you. I gave him a reprieve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Does that mean you're familiar with the podcast? Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. I've, oh, I've seen quite a lot of them, yeah. And they're very good. I enjoy them, yeah. I think it's, um, it's for supporters. Mm-hmm. It's a, getting into closer to what a player felt about the club and his time there. I think that I think that's got a great advantage of that, you know. Whereas if in the past, like I say, I always remember uh, doing a documentary on Andy Cole. And then the documentary, I think the documentary is a little bit different in terms of in a studio with this and you know, asking different questions and things like that. They did a documentary and they mentioned in it his father was a minor, right? So the next time I met Andrea, I says, um, I didn't know your father was a minor. He says, yeah, he was a minor. I says, would that have made a difference? I see your body, right? He was not pleased. We know Andrea's. I was actually going to ask you that question. When you've listened to players' interviews over the years, not necessarily on our podcast, but other interviews, is there a lot of things that they've said in interviews which maybe you didn't know when, when they were at the club? Or since you've retired, for example, players have come out and said things that have surprised you, maybe about being in the changing room with you. Is that? I, th- I think that um, you've always a player side, you know, the, maybe the way I manage the club, they would, in the dressing room, would talk about me in a, in a different way. You know what I mean? You know what you said there? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You, you, I don't know exactly. I never went in the dressing room, very seldom, unless it was, I was angry, you know? Mm-hmm. It was something I had to... Every other day then. <laughs> <laughs> no, every day. No, no, it was very seldom in the dressing room. So there's there's own domain and a lot of things would happen in there, with the discussions about the the, the game, the Saturday, whatever, uh, which I was never privy to. But it's a funny thing that on a personal note, when my, my office was always open, that's where I maybe got a more... A, a personal contact with players when they had a problem, etc., etc. And funny enough, since I retired, quite a lot of them in touch with me, you know, uh, which is nice. Yeah, it was good. That's one of the questions I was going to ask you. Do you feel more, maybe not appreciated is the right word, but since you've left the dressing room or players move on, do you feel like players want more of your time because you're not their boss anymore? Yeah, I, th- I think that's the point I was saying about in terms of personal things, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know where I am. A lot of them have come up to my office in Wimsel quite a few times, quite a few of them have done that and get a cup of coffee and things like that. I was out for lunch with Patrice Evra last week, you know, and I've had lunch with quite a few of them, you know, over the years. Mm-hmm. One thing just on Patrice Evra, obviously he's so, um, he's so big on social media, do you think you would have stood for that if he was doing that when he was playing for you? 
No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the, the, we had to, uh, when Facebook ever was coming, started and Rio, Rio started on it, I said to David Gill, you need to send him a letter and reminding him that he cannot talk about our club. You know, we did that and he was good. It was never a problem. But today, you know, I don't know, you stop these things, you know. It's a, it's a different world. I mean, it's only eight years. In that eight years, the changes, mm-hmm. you know, VAR. Yeah. I mean, the most, to me, the, the most talked about issue in football. And yet on Saturday, VAR was not used once. Do you know that? At the game on Saturday, it was not used once. And the people, the supporters will enjoy that better. You know, the game would stop for two and three minutes mm-hmm. at a time. I mean, it's so... How, would, how do you think you'd have coped with VAR, you managing now with VAR? Well, you know, I was, it was on the, it was on the, um, it was a genesis with, with the UEFA at the time when I was my last year. Yeah. And they asked the managers about it, about doing the VAR. They, they, they experimented in Italy in the, the, it was a summer cup, I think, they experimented and I don't think any manager actually supported it. Because I think it's like, well, the game's all right, you know. Mm-hmm. I think we, you see, the problem with VAR and any of these things that are changes, FIFA come up with two ideas about in the centre, centering the ball, the start of the game mm-hmm. or after the goal, you, you pass it back. You tell me what, what good that is. The difference, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or passing the ball along in the, the, go, the, the penalty box from the goalkeeper's I mean, I don't, it's like gimmicks, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a gimmick. And then we had, um, which is, it's worked well, the going clearance, the going yeah, yeah. technology. And that stayed and no one's complained one bit about it. Now your situation, we've all been there and it's not going to go away. We mm-hmm. eventually get used to it, stop complaining. Could you imagine VAR in 1966, England winning the World Cup? But we wouldn't have won. Well, we don't, we don't. I don't know about that. I mean, I spoke to yeah, a couple of the German players um, at the time uh, we played against Cologne with Rangers, and uh, Weber th- said they thought it was over. I'm sure I saw the BBC did um, like a digital recreation, and that with that the ball doesn't cross the line. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't cross the line. That's that's what they came up with. That's using like uh, using the angles and the ball and stuff. They reckon. Well, it that's doesn't what you want. You want a little bit of controversy in football. I think if you look at it that way, then the controversy is always going to be about, and, that, and in terms of decisions, is always going to be the referee's performance. Mm. And for a hundred years, we've moaned and groaned about the referee and given such and such a decision. But we, we got on with it. You know, it yeah. happens and the, the referee's got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. He may be right, he may be wrong. Most of the times you hope he's right. But he, he sometimes gets it wrong. And there's nothing wrong with that. In VAR, and in some cases, yeah. there's interpretation about who's sitting up in that box discussing it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, I think it's now showed itself that sometimes they get it wrong too. That's, that's my view of it, is that, is that it's, it's easier to forgive someone who makes a mistake in the moment than it is to forgive someone who you think has made a mistake when they've been able to watch it back five times. 100%. And then you're left furious. You're absolutely right, yeah. Yep. Yep. Talking of watching things back, I'll let you have your coffee first. 
Um, I just want to ask you about your management. Did you watch games back? Did you go home in the evening, watch the match back on MUTV, for example? What, what did you? What was your oh, process after games. a game? Oh, my wife. As soon as you went home that night, or well, yeah. my only time as a manager, you you didn't have access to recorded mm-hmm. film. You know, in fact, when I, I remember Aberdeen, you didn't have anything with that. We had a player called McDougal, magnificent striker, and he scored four goals against Celtic at Petardry, four nil we won, and every goal was absolutely different. Left foot, right foot, volleying a header, perfect four. There was television bans. That that, that footage has never been seen. What a tragedy! I mean, a real and tragedy. And no mobile phones. We didn't have access what that no. they, they do nowadays. I mean, I can tape record everything. You know, I do. I record every game. I watch football all the time. You know, it's it's not a matter of it's not a matter of choice. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of your life. Mm-hmm. What my life has been. I mean. I stepped into it and, and always said that it is a sacrifice. And it's not a sacrifice for me now, but I enjoy watching other teams, you know, mm-hmm. uh, watching, like watching games. And um, that won't go away. Mm-hmm. That doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of ourselves as a club, the uh, game on Saturday, I'd been there on the Sunday and I would watch the game again. So the I whole, knew was talking about The whole thing? But normally... In terms of assessing, I depended a lot on my, my own assessment. Mm-hmm. I never took notes during a game. I, I see managers doing that, and I, I don't understand it. Because the minute you take your eye off the game, you've lost something, you know. you know, Something can happen. So I never took notes, always depending on my memory. But not everybody has a memory like you. Well, that's maybe right, you know, maybe I have a, that's a strong point in me, yeah. Very strong. Mm-hmm. A few of the people we've spoken to have actually wondered if when you knew their parents' name or you knew the names of the people that worked in the canteen and stuff, if you had like a little system and you cheated it somehow or if you really did just remember all of that information. I never cheated it, no. What I did when I came to the club, that was in 86, I went around all the, all the offices here. There was only, I think it was a bit... 18 couldn't chefs and all that working and I, I try to get to know all their names particularly in the main the, 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 in the administration and the ticket office and that and I think I mean I had that Aberdeen, and Aberdeen was different because we had with three girls in the office and the secretary and the guy in the in the pool's office five people in the club five people in Aberdeen football club and then I had my my physio, kit man, or the kit man, when I say the kit man, he run, he run everything. He did the washing, he did Teddy Scott, he's an incredible human being. And it's actually Knox and Pat Stanton is my assistants, you know. So it was a small club running a big way. You know, they all knew their jobs. And we had the cleaners, the, the, these um, old age pensioners cleaned the stadium. So they'd all sit in the tea room in the morning. And Archie and I would come through get your backsides off and get with the Queen out. And when you start winning some games, it, it was fantastic banter. And they cleaned that stadium, old age pensioners. That was a job. And the two cleaners, um, what was it? Um, Peggy, and they cleaned it. They cleaned inside. They did all the mopping up and that, you know. Unless Dick Donald come along. Dick Donald used to come along and put his hand, finger along the skipping boards to see they were clean. 
<laughs> it was incredible. That place was immaculate. Do you look at that, Gaffer, now, when you look back at all those... I mean, you obviously, everybody looks at the first team, but how important are those people in the background that do all the, the administration, the cooking, the cleaning, the, the dirty side of it? David, I'm going to tell you something. The greatest asset of leadership is communication. Mm-hmm. Unquestionable. You have to put your value in people who, who are with you. Make them feel valued. I had a manager and he was a good man. There was nothing wrong with him. But he didn't have the confidence to say good morning to you. You know? I would never walk in by anyone without acknowledging them. Mm. You know? And I think that, that I learned that. I probably learned that from a, my days as a, a shop steward when I was a young, young man, you know? Yeah. Uh, communication is, is, is... Would that come is, from your father as well, though? Uh, not necessarily, no. no. Not necessarily. My dad was a very quiet man. Right. My mother was a more uh, valuable, you know? Yeah. No, I think I learned that working as a toolmaker and uh, you're working with human beings who are different types of p- human beings mm-hmm. and and different different dreams and different ideas about about a trade union, you know, mm-hmm. that you didn't have it all your own way, you know. You, there was a lot of strikes in these days in, in, in my industry, you know. But you, you learn to, to to manage that and learn to understand people. And I think when I went to management, I really knew I had to have that asset about valuing people who are working for you. Yeah. You know, you, you think since at Old Trafford, um, after winning the Cup or, or the league or whatever, we had the Cup on the Monday for the other, everybody, all the staff, everybody there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the players' day. No. They had their day on the Saturday and... Uh, they had the champagne out because I think that was important to recognise what they do behind the scenes this is a really tedious link but speaking of communication because everybody's going to be annoyed if we haven't asked this question um, did you speak to Cristiano Ronaldo before he (laughs) dramatically re-signed for United can I just interrupt there as well do you remember we spoke what three weeks ago Yeah. and we did an interview yeah. And you said, I asked you, one. I think one of the fans had asked a question and I put to you and said, being a manager nowadays and signing players, and you said the words, I'd love to have brought Cristiano Ronaldo back. And I don't even think that was on the radar then. And that was only three weeks ago. Yeah. Unbelievable what's happened since then. Yeah, no, but the, the thing is, I think I think of a fan now. I think what a fan was thinking when he read he was going to say, I mean... Disbelief, I would say. It was no, disbelief. it can't happen. I, I cannot believe that. Just didn't know where it happened. Simply that. How good is it to have him back? Fantastic. What do, what do you think he'll bring to the club or to the team as well? Well, you see, Saturday, that was what Caesar entering Rome after victory. I came, I saw, I conquered. It was fantastic. Hmm. I mean, for anyone who's a United fan, we could have a million people in there Without doubt. Hmm. I mean, someone, someone's telling me outside, there was hundreds outside, you know. It's, it's one of these things that when I was here as a kid, the learning process was very, very quick. And what people says he was a diver, it was not, that was a little spell of that. But after that, he was attacking defenders and they only needed a nudge and he lost his balance. Yeah. And he was attacking with unbelievable speed. And the, 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 
think Chris and his knowledge of the game and his, well, I think he's born with a desire. You know, as I made the point about sacrifice. Yeah. He sacrificed himself to be the best. I remember we were playing Arsenal on a Saturday. <clears throat> it was pouring rain at Carrington. And I says him, because, you know, you would always practice after training. Yeah. I says, in this game tomorrow, it's too wet. The ground's too soft. So I went in my office, looked out the window. What does it do? He's on the AstroTurf. I have no argument. <laughs> I can't say anything to him. He's, you know, he's beat me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that having witnessed him, and we had six years of him. I mean, people think, oh, we did all that time at Real Madrid. We had six years mm-hmm. as he grew up. Mm-hmm. You know, in that situation, the the year before they left, when um, he had um, the incident with Wayne, mm-hmm. when the wing got sent off, and they caught him winking. He wasn't winking to having got Rooney off. He was winking because the, the, his bench was saying, calm down, you know, and he said, I'm all right. And Wazer, Wayne was fantastic because he phoned me, he says, look, why don't we do a, a TV interview, the two of us together, at the start of the season? And I says, seems a wee bit gimmicky, that, mm. you know? But I says, you only need to say something the next time we... And he was great, Wayne. He was. He, I mean, he knew that he wasn't sent off because of Ronaldo. He was sent off because the tackle and the, the other Portuguese player. Um, so Cristiano didn't want to come back. So David Gill now flew out to Portugal and had a meeting with him. And George Mendes was fantastic. He really was. I says, I'm not selling you to the president of Real Madrid at the time uh, but give me one year at your best and you're going with, with my blessing and George Mendes says deal done they didn't wait for that Ronaldo to say you could have yes, said two know. years yeah <laughs> and he would have said yeah yeah but George was great he knew he was at the best place yeah and it was the best place for him obviously he starts to mature and he's the signs are it's going to be something special. Mm-hmm. He had the dream of going to Real Madrid. And I'm, I'm not against that because six years was great for us for a boy from Madeira. Yeah. Getting him here just before his 18th birthday and having him six years. I think we did well that way. And it, it gave me a chance to get a replacement and we got Valencia. Mm-hmm. And Valencia was fantastic. Yeah. You know, so we we're very lucky that way, you know. Did you ever foresee how good he would become? Yeah, absolutely. I knew that. I knew that when they got to that kind of platform, Real Madrid, where they, if you have got to be fair to Real Madrid, they are the one club that has produced world-class players yeah. for years and years and years. And they won the European Cup so many times. It's 13 now or something like that, you know. You've got to, you've got to give them credit. It's a, it's a platform where any great player would want to go to, mm. you know. But you know when you you look at you look at Ronaldo there and you look at Rooney coming in and young players we have signed who've gone on to be absolute superstars. How much of that can you actually see at a young age for those players? Because you must see there must be something there. You go, he's got something. Well, with Wayne, I know we've got a fantastic scouting system as well. But for you to see it as well and go, wow. Within the case of um, Wayne, we tried to sign him as fourteen when he was at Everton's yeah. youth system 
And Jim Ryan had, had seen him play against her under 14s, and Jim Ryan had just just four. quickly. Someone seems to be dragging maybe a massive bin or something down the corridor. Oh, I think it's a coffin. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and then when we were 16, we tried saying, but he didn't want to come. Mm-hmm. He was quite happy, Everton. Then when Walter Smith was manager, and then Walter was going up to manage Scotland. Sorry, no, big, sorry. He just finished with Scotland. Yeah. And we, Walter says, well, you've got to get this boy, Rooney. You've got to get him. And then I had Walter for six months. And he kept on about him. He says, I'll tell you, you've got to get this boy. So that's what we did. We went for him. And uh, we signed him the, the weekend after we played Everton. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, the two of them together was quite. It's quite exciting. The two of them together. Why were on? Just say why were on transfers. What about? Were there any players that you ever desperately wanted? Because obviously people talk about Shearer and maybe Ronaldinho, Wesley Snyder, Zidane, maybe, uh, and names that are often thrown around as ones that we were maybe interested in. Were there ones you ever looked at and thought, if only we'd have got you? Well, you mentioned the boy Schneider. This came up a lot there. I was never interested in Schneider. I don't know where it came from. It's every single that. summer that came you up. Get, you get that lot of that. And I remember when I first came, every Sunday in the people, they were throwing names all, all, all the time, you know. But um, in, in, in reality, you have to... There's only one that can always come to my mind, and that's Gascoigne. And he was absolutely fantastic. I think if we'd have got him, I think he would have had a great career. I really do. I know I'm saying he didn't have a good, good, good career, but I think he did a better career with us. Because we had Geordies in our squad with Brian Robson, with Steve Bruce, with Bobby Charlton. I mean, Bobby Charlton would have been a fantastic uh, mentor to him. It would have been because he was such a fantastic man, and he'd even Gary Pallister, although it was Middlesbrough. They don't. I know they don't count as a jury, <laughs> but it, someone understands the culture with Gary Wood. And he, he promised to sign for us, and I went on holiday and uh, got a phone call to the front desk. I went, Martin Edwards says he signed for Tottenham. They signed for Tottenham because they bought his mother a house for £80,000. I mean, dear me, I couldn't believe that. You know, but he was a he was a fantastic player. Have you ever spoke about that to Gaza himself? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, he, you know what he says himself. You know, he, I wish. Yeah, he, he made a mistake. What Anybody about else? signing this guy? Yeah, I was gonna say anyone ever bought your mum a house, Maisie? No. <laughs> you hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember signing Maisie? Yeah. I signed him for two reasons. I was gonna say, what was the attraction? <laughs> Great passer of all. He's told us that before. Mm-hmm. That's why I was wondering. We didn't know whether he was lying and or he not. Had a, one of these <laughs> attributes, and uh, it's not a criticism, but he and Gabby Hines did the same thing. First thing they did was kick the opponent in front of him. Yeah. Whack. And then, as if he's just come out of no. church. I mean, you know. <laughs> Gabby Hines was exactly the same. But he was a good passer ball. And I think it's important for the kind of club that we were 
that they can pass the ball out from the So back. he had a bit of nastiness in him, basically, Oof, is absolutely. what you're saying. Yeah. Which brings me on to, we did a podcast with Paddy Crerant recently. Uh-huh. And he might have said the same thing about you on the pitch. Me? <laughs> yeah, I believe his exact words were, uh, I don't know why I'm the one repeating them, but I believe his exact words were, he said, and you can tell him this, he was a nasty b****. He said so-and-so, actually, I think, Sam. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, but I was competitive. Put it that way. And, uh, you have to be. Un- unfortunately, I had a bad record. <laughs> <laughs> I got sent off eight times. What? <laughs> yeah. That's quite a lot. All, All your fault. Unfair. All street reds. <laughs> unfair. Street no, reds. One or two was unfair. Uh, I remember I got sent off with Collinstein when he was at Hibs at Ibrox. And... Uh, I mean, he threw a punch at me and I just dodged it and I get sent off. It's true, honestly. <laughs> and uh, I get two weeks suspension for that. I miss the Rangers Celtic match because of it. Anyway. Were you an emotional player? Did you get emotional during games? And that how uh, your kind of, don't want to say aggression came out, but... <laughs> no, I think it was aggressive. I don't, really, I don't think it was emotional, no. No, I think... Uh, Eight red cards sounds aggressive. <laughs> well, I think that um, I think the game was different, obviously, in these days. And it, you know, when I played up there at, in Scotland, I I did my homework on every centre half I was going to play against, and I knew who the really aggressive. I mean, there was some psychopaths up there, I'm telling you, and there was some really aggressive centre halves because that's the way the game was. You know, there's no doubt. I knew that the first ball would come to whack. You know, you're going to get to get the head in the back of the head. You know, that's the way it was. And you, you had to look after yourself. And I wasn't afraid. You know, I think that's the important thing. I wasn't afraid. You know. I asked you there about being emotional as a player. Did you have times in your management here when you got emotional? Yeah, I think I think there was. I think that period, they always found that the period when the players were out warming up, I found that a difficult bit because you're on your own. You're, mm-hmm. a, you're in isolation. A lot of times people don't understand about management. I remember, remember reading a great book by Sean Fallon who was assistant manager at Celtic and he was talking about the time when it, when Sean and, and Jock were coming towards the sort of a last part of their time at Celtic and how lonely they became. And I, and I, 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 could, I could refer to that myself because mm-hmm. sometimes... It, I've been in my office in the afternoon and everybody thinks you're busy. You know what I mean? Mm. And nobody comes to your, your office and, and and I start to go and look looking for going out your offices and annoy people and you know what I mean? Well, well yeah, because that loneliness can get to you, you know, you're saying nobody's when or just through shout through you when anything anything there when no everything you've done everything boss, you know, you're okay. And then I walk into somebody's office and have a chat, I get a cup of tea with them and that, you know, that kind of thing. But you know, people, if you're going to understand a manager, you have to be a manager, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the kind of day they can go through and the sort of uh, um, challenges they've got in terms of being active all the time and, and, and be able to cope with loneliness. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I could think, use my thinking a lot of times I get into a wee sort of a cocoon and uh, be thinking about 10 games forward you know get through games that are coming up and have a mental thing about 
who should play and get put games. And I used that that wellness at times. Who was your confidant then when, at times when you did feel lonely? Who did you use as your well, confidant? Well, I think I think the, there's always there's always somebody you should be able to to talk to. And when I first came down to United, um, Archie was going to be my assistant. He stayed in Aberdeen uh, until they got a manager. And he was there, I think it was Archie was there up in Aberdeen for maybe five, six weeks. And um, my confidant was John Lyle at West Ham. I was friend with went. We met in holiday uh, uh, 1982, and him and his family, Cathy and her family, used to go together a lot. And we became very friendly. And he provided me with information and all the teams we're playing against, you know. Because I'm not being critical, but I, I find this confidence in him and I would in anybody I didn't mm-hmm. know. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They had reports, they had reports. Was yeah. not, they had reports, but not. I thought that John Wyle would be bang on, you know. And he was very good to me, he was. And that, that existed in, to that whole season, my first six months at the club. Then once I got Wes Kershaw in as my chief scout and we started, you know, being, you know, being on the ball a bit and Archie was there. And Archie was always a great confidant. Archie was an incredible human being. His work ethic was fantastic. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's an incredible guy. And uh, and after that, you know, Carlos Kers. Jim Ryan, Mick Fewin, Steve McNally, uh, Steve McLaren, sorry, were all very good, you know, mm-hmm. in confidence, you know, in terms of... We were a very stable club by that time anyway. Yeah. The early part was always hard for Archie and I, really difficult, because the first team were, were you know, it was quite an old team, actually, when I came, and uh, we knew that there was a big job to do in that respect, so it was important that a first... Um, Signing was going to be very, very influential. And we signed Viv Anderson and uh, Brian McClare. And because uh, people don't understand this, man, it was never any money to pay the club, I don't think. Mm. We never paid anything anyway. But the money was always season ticket money to buy a player, you know. And then Brian, Brian Cause said, Fifty, I think it was in Vivis two and a half, two two, two hundred fifty thousand. Sorry, and they were great. Brian McCoy was a fantastic signing. He was an unbelievable player. And then next year I got I got Marcus, and mm-hmm. that was a great partnership because Sparky, probably one of the best big game players of yeah. all time, it was unbelievable in a big game. Yeah. So bit by bit you were getting there. And there was Steve Bruce, about nine months later or something like that. Steve played for eight, nine years, you know. Doesn't matter how many injuries Bruce had, yeah. he played with them. You know, he was incredible. So until the very important thing of which we, I told the directors when I arrived the night before I, I took the job that what well, I believed in and I was going to try and, like I did Aberdeen and Simon, was to build the football club, you know, through youth Mm-hmm. And so that the stream coming through, you could look forward to two or three years ahead 
and know what was coming through. Was Samat a big part of that as well? Obviously, he brought in the Busby Bears and the history of the club. Well, did Samat, you take that? Samat on was getting old at the time. Yeah. You know, I, I used to get in his office a while. He was fantastic with me. And I always remember the advice he gave me. Uh, uh, he says, How you doing, son? And he was smoking his pipe. And I says, um, I said, Press, you know, he says, What are you reading them for? I didn't read the press. And it was a great, great bit of advice. I, I remember coming to see you in my first year at United. Yeah. Complain about the press. And you went, Why'd you read it? Huh? Why'd you read it? Yeah. And exactly. I thought, And I never did after that. No, exactly. It's, it's, did you read it before that? Before yeah. he said that to you? Of course you do, don't you? You want to read somebody's yeah. thing, hang you? Whether it's good or bad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's true. Uh, but Bobby Charm was the most important person, honestly. He was all for um, starting with the youth, you know? Mm-hmm. And he used to come down. You know, I always remember, I said to him, you need to come down and see this boy. He says, uh, what's his name? I said, Ryan Wilson. I said, come, yeah, honestly. So he came down to Witterton Road, and we're playing away in the, yeah. the coach's pitch, you know, at the young boys' pitch. And he was about 50 yards from that, I noticed he was coming. And I walked towards him. He said, I've seen the boy. For 50 yards away, he'll seen him. Wow. It's amazing. And became Ryan Giggs. But um, that, I think that was... Um, it's worth talking about because it's interesting because... At the time, United only two scouts in Manchester. You know that? Mm-hmm. So I got a map and I put it up on my wall of a Manchester. And I called the scouts in. There was about four or five scouts or something like that. A couple of them were doing the outside. They were very good. They were some very good scouts in terms of what they were doing. But you see yourself, it's a big area. I mean, Manchester... Uh, Greater Manchester, six and a half million people. Yeah. So I say, who's doing this area? And who's doing that? And it was, these guys were covering too too big areas. And that's where Wes Kershaw came in. Brian Kidd did a good job Mm -hmm. with that, getting local um, teachers and people he knew in the Manchester area. And by that time, we were flooding the area. And that was a big move, you know. Uh, But I I put a lot of responsibility. Uh, to organise it, because Wes Kershaw was an organiser. Yeah. You know, he was a clever man and he had an appetite, you know. Uh, and we, we got the ball rolling and we trialled and coached and for and eventually you could see the seam building, mm-hmm. you know. And it got to a point where we're actually letting the really good players go who went on to have careers like Jonathan Woodgate. Yeah. You know, or good careers because we didn't think they were just 100%. Although, in Jonathan Woodgate's case, it was a bit unlucky because the scout who recommended him died, you know, when he was scouting him. And we lost the thread mm-hmm. of the, the contact, you know. But he signed for Louise instead. But he was a very good young uh, yeah. player in trial with us. Uh, so the, the build-up from there on, it became consistent, you know. That we knew we were, everyone knew they were going. And then the, the, the rewards... With Eric Harrison, youth coach, oh, gee, oh. fantastic! I remember him up in that window, you know. He went in the coach's window and um, he was watching the game, and somebody would make a mistake, and he'd bat in the window, and they would not look up. 
If it, if it didn't wake up, he'd been down, <laughs> down the stairs. I think you've done that a few times as well, by the way, banging oh, well, on the windows. Sometimes. <laughs> but no, with, with, with energy and with the desire to do well, you know, yeah. and uh, became very good. Brian Robson showed us around the cliff in one of our first episodes. And he showed us your office and said that you would be smashing on the window and all the players would always be in awe that it didn't break. <laughs> I'm not going to such a good punch there, never. <laughs> but uh, no, it was, it was, yeah. The cliff was, the cliff was great when I first came to begin with. But then when the, the club grew and we had to put an extension in the indoor place for the, the young boys to train, uh, to, to dress, there was no space in the actual building. So then Ken, Mary and I started wandering about Manchester looking for a piece of ground we could build a new training ground. And uh, oh, we everywhere. And up north Manchester in particular, up all those areas. And uh, then all of a sudden, Wes Kessel came to see me. A friend of his was either an accountant or an architect at Shell. And he says, this friend became very, very, became the, the most important thing I have to us. He says, Shell are trying to sell a bit of their ground over at Carrington. So Ken and I and Les and the guy, I, I think his name, went to see it. It was the size of the land we were getting, you know. I think it was something like 28 acre, acres or something. Uh, there was restrictions, which I can't understand today. Why Carrington is Carrington? Mm. Because part of the restrictions was an event of war where they turn the, the ground into potato fields. That's <laughs> <laughs> true, honestly. And up at the very end, that so many, an acre or two acres for Canadian geese. Right. right? And you couldn't, there was moats. Remember the moats coming right yeah, through? Yeah, yeah. We yeah. couldn't change them because the voles were living in them. Now, these are all the restrictions we, I had. So we couldn't do anything, really. And then I goes down went after I'd retired, and we put up floodlights and <laughs> stands and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, David Gill was fantastic. He was, he was a really, I would say that he made a big difference to the club. Anyway, he came in on Friday, every Friday morning. He started off at nine o'clock, but I had the press at half nine, so he then we start that again. He'd walk out, come back in, walk out, come back in. Then it was half eight, then it was eight o'clock. <laughs> I mean, honestly. And the thing I was really wanting after we lost Ronaldo, I said, we need to have the best training ground in the world. And I went to this medical centre, right? Mm -hmm. And I fought and fought for that, right? Eventually, we got it and owned the month I retired. <laughs> That's typical. I never saw it. Since, I never saw it. Since you've been retired, has there ever been a moment where you thought, I could do this, I could get back out there? No. No, there, there's moments you, you, if you're vain enough to think that way. Mm -hmm. But I made a decision. I was doing a decision because of Cathy's sister dying. Yeah. And uh, she was on her own. There was no doubt about that. I went to the cup final. We, we took Cathy to the European final that next year when Real played Atletico in, in Lisbon. 
And that is the first time I say to myself, God, I miss this. Mm. I miss this. And I don't see Ronaldo after the game. Carlo Ancelotti was the manager. He was a fantastic guy. And he, he, he saw me in the corridor. I was waiting. And he, they said Christian was going to a medical to get uh, tested. And I, he, he said, okay, okay, come in. And all the players come around and shake my hand. It was really a nice moment, you yeah. know. But that's probably the only time that I say to myself, I miss this, mm. you know, a big game like that. Did you have a little bit of a bucket list when you retired? Yeah. Have you ticked anything yeah, off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been to the Oscars. I've been to... <laughs> that is I not what I expected. <laughs> not what a normal person's bucket list <laughs> consists of. What was it like? It was fantastic, yeah. It was uh, it was amazing because we were in... Um, well, the, 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 the award part is for all the actors and their families and all that. We were in the next tier. You know something I couldn't believe? There's a woman sitting in front of me playing poker in a machine. I swear. I was saying, what a waste of a ticket. <laughs> really? Why is there even a poker machine in there? No, she did in her, her On lap. a phone? Yeah. What? She had a, 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 in her lap, she was playing poker. Oh. <laughs> waste Honestly. of a ticket. Couldn't believe it. So the Oscars was one. What else was on that Oscars, bucket list? I was, at, I was at the the night before the Oscars, the big duo one at the, the Beverly Hills. That's where they gave all the gifts and all that. You know, it's, you got a lot of gifts and that. But and the Oscar itself, it was good. I went to the Vanity Fair party after it. You know, uh, it was good. It was really good. And then I went to the Masters, and uh, I'm still trying to get my wife to agree. May I go to the Melbourne Cup? <laughs> I think that's four one. Yeah. I don't think there's any chance of that. But and uh, I was at Kentucky Derby. Martin, uh, Jason with, went with me, my, my lawyer in New York. We went there. It was fantastic. We were at the same table as um, Harry Connick Jr., you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the actor, a really nice man. He was really, really good with his family. And we had a really good time with that. So I've, I've taken a few things. A few things. Obviously, COVID's probably oh, yeah, I mean, ruined your bucket list you know, a little bit. You know something? I never went out of the house for four months. How yeah. difficult was that for you? No I mean, problem. we've all got busy lives, but none no problem. more so. Really? Not a bad problem. You enjoyed it? I, I, well, I, I can never be bored. Honestly, I always find something. You read the plenty of books that I can read. You read the TV. I, I, I was starting to, you know, to do the cooking with Kathy. was probably her, her back in that, you know. So I did. I was, I was, I was occupied all day, you know. I found it, you know. <laughs> What, no what was on the menu? I can cook. Go on. Can you? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. What's, what's, what would be... Uh, anything. 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 Speciality of anything? No speciality. No, just... Cook, yeah. I actually worked in the kitchen for uh, for a year when I was young. You didn't know that, eh? No. And no. The, 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 the manager was Kenny Degoish's father-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> he was a good cook. He was he a was very good publican. Actually, he was a pub... Pub restaurant place, just not far from me, you know, just around the corner from me, and uh, was in there for about a year. Gaffer, some, we've had some unbelievable <clears throat> characters at the club and players at the club. How how do how do you, or how did you manage so many egos in a dressing room? To you know, you got Cantona, Robson, Keane, all those that Ronaldo, Tevez, Rooney. How do you manage them? What's what's the, what's the secret to it? Well, or is there a secret to it? I don't think I ever lost control. 
No, I, I made a vow to myself. When I became a manager, I always remember my first away game was East Ellen playing Albion Rovers at Albion Rovers. I mean, Albion Rovers pitch is up on a hill here and, and the pitch is that way and one corner's short on the other. You've no idea what kind of place it is, you know, but we was 5-2. And I'm going home that night and I say to myself, didn't expect this. And I realised then if I didn't create a winning mentality with my players, I was never going to make it. Mm-hmm. And that was my first, first aim was to make sure I could identify myself with players, you see. So, and the players you're talking about, they all, by their own upbringing, or their own ambitions, their own desires, equaled what I was expecting mm-hmm. in a player. My expectation yeah. was, was in there. So I had no need to try and change that. What I, I would change is when a player was causing me trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of my control. Yeah. If I thought that it was interfering with control, that was it. Because of the time period that you managed and because of the, in, like in 92, the inception of the Premier League and then the money in football changed, you managed through a fairly unique period where you would have managed players who at one point were playing for, you know, it was their livelihoods, you know, to put a roof over their heads, to feed their families, you know, they need to be in the matchday squad. But then at one point you would have reached a point where that wasn't true because the players were earning enough money regardless of playing, that that didn't matter. Did that have to change your approach to managing people in that situation and what their inspirations were and what sort of got them going? I, I, I think that... Well, the way I look at football is I think they deserve to be paid well. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not yeah. questioning that at all. No, but so... And I would be the first to help them in that respect. I know that it was when Martin was chairman, it was, you know, he negotiated all the contracts. So uh, I didn't have to worry about that. I, I was involved in that, put it that way. Sometimes he would come to me and say that you know, the certain player had not signed a contract, have a word with him, things like that. But other than that, that was his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, 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 the answer to it all was do you want my United want to stay up the top? then they have to meet the criteria of what players are getting paid. You know, and that's what happened. When I first came to the club, obviously Brian Robson was uh, the highest paid player at that time. I can't remember what it was, but it changed. It changed, I remember, when, I remember it this way. It changed when we bought Neil Webb. Because mm-hmm. I went to meet his agent out in Derbyshire and... Um, he, he, he threw these figures at me and I says, what? I says, that's three times what Brian Robson's on. He said, well, that's the figures. So I went back to tell my neighbors this and I left it with them and they negotiated. And that's where you saw that, that's when the, I, I think the rises started to happen mm-hmm. around about uh, 91, 92 or something like that. And of course, today it's... But I, I do, I do believe that if you look at tennis players and golfers, mm-hmm. you know, and you see American basketball players, yeah. I mean, the money that they earn, you've got to think, well, my United are drawing 75,000 people when they watch them. They're shown in televisions all over the world. You know, they deserve, players deserve to be rewarded the same way as other top sportsmen. So I've no, I've no 
problem with that at all. Keith Gillespie told us a great story about when uh, you negotiated his move to Newcastle, you told them he was on a wage and they had to match it, but it was actually like double or triple what his wage at United was. <laughs> no, I did that. I did that with them all. No one went outside. No, no one went to everything. I says, look, they've asked me what you're on. I've told them it's double that. <laughs> well, you've got to help. You know, my players, believe me, I want to, I want to feel that they've been rewarded and respected, you know. But, uh, I, I mean, they don't need to pay it, mm-hmm. you know. But, you know, they did. Can we talk a little bit about silverware? It's hard to do an interview with you without cliches, but if you can just talk to us about those first couple of years without a trophy. We've talked to lots of uh, the your players about it at that time. And they felt certainly the pressure rising. Tell us about that time for you. Going for trophies. Yes, going way back to the first couple of years at your well, time the, here. Co- Sorry, oh, the first couple. Oh yeah. Are we, Is that the most pressure you felt? Yeah, that's since being. Doubt. Yeah, no doubt. We went through December '89. Went through December without winning a game. It was eight matches that, that season, and we drew five and was three. And that was a that's when the press were obviously having a real go at me and uh, the worst one was we played Crystal Palace at Old Times one of these dark December days you know it was you know there was no light in the world you know what I mean and uh, we're winning 1-0 at half time was 2-1 uh, Ian Wright and, mm-hmm. and uh, Mark Bright Mark scored Bright. the two goals and that was the, the, that night they were making the draw for the FA Cup the first round, the first round proper for us, third round. And Bob Cass, uh, the me on Sunday, says, before the game we played, for, uh, we played um, Powers, could he give me a phone, get my reaction in the draw? So we got drawn against Forrest away. Oh, God. So he phoned me, he says, I was scared to actually phone you, you know, as a hell of a draw. I says, tell because at that time, arguably, they were one of the best cup size mm-hmm. in the country because they'd won the, the week cup I think three times in a row or something like that and um, as the know it is was and as people look upon that game as as pivotal and in a, in a way I think they're, they're probably right in a lot of, I always remember um, well I didn't I didn't see it but I know I got the, the feedback from it that um uh, and the commentary they're saying the warm up they were a beaten team the warm ups you know and it's hard for you know if, unless you really have a good memory to remember what our team was mm-hmm. because we had five players injured Brian Wilson was out Neil Webb was out Paul Ince was out there was five of them out but those were three key players yeah. were out but when the game was the fans the fans were defiant. The fans were not going to be beaten. They were unbelievable that day. Fantastic they were. And we won one You know, and it started that, that run. And the funny thing was, for me, I then realised what this Manchester United team is about the last 15 years. Because mm-hmm. of cup football. Mm-hmm. They're queuing up at Old Trafford for tickets for the next round at Hereford. Right? And the next round is away to Newcastle, then to Sheffield, all away games. Yeah. They're queuing up for tickets. They'd become a cup team. That's what it'd become. So therefore, the change had to be the week. 
that had to be the the that had to be the the, the most important thing in my life then mm-hmm. to win that league. And eventually won it in uh, 92, 93. Well, you lost the year before to Leeds. Yeah. With Cantona in it. How pivotal was Cantona yeah. coming to the club? Well, the Cantona, I maybe. How did, that, how did that come about? Because it well, wasn't just straightforward. It wasn't straightforward because I, I, can't, I can't remember the, 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 the timelines in it because I was at a game in Paris. I was at. I went to a game in Paris mm-hmm. and I'm sitting beside Michel Pertini and Gerard Toulier. And Cantor uh, has been suspended. And Michel said to me, you should sign Cantona. And I says, there's no baggage here. He says, I like, you'd love him. He's a great lad. He just needs to be wanted. Mm-hmm. And Gerard Toulier, he, he, he echoed that. And by the time I got back, he was in trial at Sheffield Wednesday yeah. with Trevor Francis for a month. And we were playing indoor football or somewhere, you know. And they come at the end of the month, apparently, Trevor offered him a chance to stay on. He said, oh, I'm not playing this. So he, phoned, he was very friendly with uh, Howard Wilkinson. And he phoned Howard and Howard signed him immediately. Because I think at that time, because Chapman had got injured against yeah. us in, uh, uh, just before Christmas. We played him three times in a month. And the, the one we wanted, he won, we drew. And we won the other two cup ties. The semi-final of the week cup and mm-hmm. uh, third round uh, FA Cup. And he's, he'd signed for his weeds. I went, unusual, I went in for a bath after we played weeds. And Pally and Bruce were sitting in the bath <clears throat> and they were talking about him. He says, what a player he is. I tell you, strength. And they were going on about him. It's just going in my head, you mm-hmm. know. Going in my head. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> that summer, I tried to get Alan Shearer. Try to get, try get David Hurst. Mm-hmm. And I was in the chairman's office and... I suggested we should have a go for uh, Bearsley, who was out of the Everton team at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was about to make a call, and we got a phone call from Bob Fotherby of Wiz United trying to sign Dennis Irwin. And I said, No chance. No chance. Yeah. And I said to myself, So I wrote in Martin Edwards' desk, Cantona. So he asked him, he asked both Fallaby, what about Eric Cantona? And he hesitated. He says, oh, uh, I'll need to ask Howard. Oh, and you, and you. About 15 minutes later, he come back, he says, okay. And then they, they started negotiating over the phone over the price. He wanted 1.1. I think Martin got it at 900,000, actually. And it was done with that, you know. And I always remember the next day I was because uh, we were in the, we were playing City, the uh, derby game, and Pierre and I had agreed to have a lunch with uh, Bob Cass and Joe Melling of the Mail on Sunday at the Portland Hotel, and I says I need to go. I'm sorry, I can't wait. I'm, I'll be, I may be back, so I went away. We signed them, come back, sat down, 
wie wir sind hier. Wir können sagen, es ist es, ähm, wo war ich? Es ist nicht so, wie ich sage, in Kantina. Ich sage, komm mal, der bin da. Es ist anders. Es ist wie Berno vom Zerungi. Aber da war ich auch hier. Ja. <lacht> so, ich bin ich, 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 und Saturday, and come on and after about 20 minutes or something, we was a Brian McQuaid again, and anyway, somebody injured, come on. It was fantastic signing. Would you say winning that first league title became an obsession for you? No, I, I, I think what it did was it opened the door for us mm-hmm. in terms of the realisation and the expectation built and the players' confidence built and uh, there was no way back mm-hmm. there was no way back it, it didn't do it didn't change me in any way it just a bit a bit of relief yeah I would say there was a bit of relief but it just it just opened the doors for everything mm-hmm. you know it was fantastic I mean it, the next season that next that summer was saying Roy Keane and then we, you had midfield players at Robson Fielding Webb you know, all the, and the team that they get, you know. So it was a really powerful midfield we were, were producing. And uh, Giggs was starting to come into the team. You know, it was, it was, it was a good spell. It was, you could, you could see that the confidence is growing, you know. And we just get better and better. What does it feel like? to be sat here now at Old Trafford and reminiscing on those early years at United and the pressure you were under to win trophies and then being able to do it. And then right now we're sat here adjacent to the Sir Alex Ferguson stand outside. There's a statue of you. How do, how easy is it to, to comprehend all of that? Well, at the time it was, it was very, very emotional to do these things for the, for the, from the club it was great. I mean, that time with the stand named after me, I had no idea about it. Yeah, you were genuinely surprised. I remember you saying that one of the only times they kept a secret I, from I me. And I walked to as I was walking out, I noticed there was a there's a wee frame sitting in the grass. And I says, Christ, they're gonna give me a photograph. <laughs> <laughs> and Jason never told me anything. He, he Jason had planned it with David Gill, you know. And I'm walking, I'm saying, photograph. I've got plenty of photographs. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, t- he turned me away from there to face the main stand, you know. And then it turned out that it was really emotional. I didn't know what to say. I was gobsmacked. I'm, gobs- you- Sorry, I'm, I'm gobsmacked that you didn't know that because you knew everything else. <laughs> exactly. Everything. I mean, I remember me and Scalzi being out in Middleton and coming in on a Sunday, and you actually asking where we were last night, and I'm thinking, how on earth does he know where I've been? Because it's as if you had spies everywhere. Well, the thing is, David... Did you? Wait, you all used to say the same thing. Yeah. And somebody says, well, somebody tells them, didn't they? <laughs> somebody tells Yeah, you remind your man says, and I did, that phone's gone a million times. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Just because you mentioned Dwight York really quickly, I tell him no, you had a question. It's okay. He said on the podcast with us that after after winning the treble, he came to you and asked for a year uh, off. Uh, you think so? Well, <laughs> yeah, we weren't sure. <laughs> no, I can't remember that. 
Vad är vad är det för det över det blir mycket inget där. Så ja okej. Okay. So I can't believe this is the first time the trebles actually come up but lots of your players have said how they didn't maybe enjoy the good moments while they happened. Do you look back and think did I really enjoy those good moments? Definitely. The final was the best moment of your life. I it doesn't matter what we won whatever it was gone for me within two years, two or three years. Mm-hmm. But you but enjoyed it moment, at that time. That moment's fantastic. And uh, I remember when we won in Barcelona, the players were celebrating and um, I, I, went, I went for a walk. And there was all these alleyways at Barcelona, you know, colleges and things like that. And I'm walking there and here's this pal of mine from Aberdeen with his son walking too. And he's crying. And it's, it's amazing. And I says, what's wrong? He says, oh, I can't believe it. So we're walking all through this. And all of a sudden, this buggy comes, with the F official. He says, Mr. Ferguson, you've got to be at the press conference. Oh. You know? Because I want to, you know, I want to feel it myself. You know what I mean? The dressing room is, of course, is electric. You know, throwing champagne over each other and Albert's in the bath. (laughs) 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 Trying underwater swimming. (laughs) So you've just won the treble and you decide to go for a walk and the only person you bump into is somebody from Aberdeen. That is how small the world is. And he became president of SFA. No way. Al McRae. Surely there was thousands of fans. No. It was in these alleyways and things that's dead it's, it's really quiet no way I actually wanted to ask you that just totally off topic of football is it difficult for you to live a normal life go to your local supermarket yeah yeah nobody bothers me Rimsel. nobody bothers you no that has to be a respect thing though rather than yeah well yeah look- could be yeah yeah but, uh, no there's I nothing get, you feel like you can't I do in your life coffee bars and and Rimsel. There's two or three I like to go to. Uh, I go to Marks and Spencer's in the the garage there, and there's a Tesco there, and there's a post office. The post office, right? <laughs> Behind that grill, the girls, city fans. <laughs> uh, you need to start going to a new I post office. Them. <laughs> <laughs> so when when they were going, what's the name? Uh, Sue. She says, uh, oh, I've got cancer now, you've been sick as a pig. You know? Ronaldo. Says, Ronaldo. Ronaldo. Uh, so, yeah. uh, sorry. Uh, you've got Ronaldo, you were sick. I says, don't hatch your eggs <laughs> now. <do you?" laughs> Brilliant. Then when, when it was, she was hiding, she wouldn't come out. I said, get her out, get her out. Oh, really good fun. And there's a, uh, there's other girls who watch the actual, doing the, the post office in the, the, the actual shop. I came in one day and she's standing at the front, front of the door kissing her boyfriend. I said, you'll never, you'll never go, you know where you get off that kiss, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a safe fun. <laughs> oh. That's nice, though, that you feel you can do those normal things. Because yeah. for young players now, it's very difficult. It's pandemonium when they go out, isn't it? But it must be a respect thing with you. People feel like, oh, I don't want to approach you. Yeah, but also my age, you know, my age has got to do with that. You know what I mean? Nobody's going to buy an old man, are they? I think a lot of people would like to. I'm 18 in December. (laughs) 
You're not coming to the party. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I'm not having any party. But uh, no, I think that, um, yeah, we're, we're lucky, you know, in terms of my retirement. Yeah, I had an issue with my, the brain hemorrhage thing now, but I've recovered really well for that, you know, and at the time it was a, a really, really difficult moment, you know what I mean? Lucky to survive and good God to think. Do you have a look back at that gaffer and think, yes, you are lucky to be alive, but now do you look at your life a little bit different from... Yeah, definitely. Yeah? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think of... Um, what do you appreciate more? I think appreciate as I survived. Yeah. And I appreciate the kind of a people I was, uh, who helped me through that. And the NHS are fantastic. We had a, we had a, had a my charity do the following year for the NHS mm-hmm. and raised 410,000 or something like that. You know, it was great mm-hmm. to do that kind of thing. They were all there, the nurses and that. And they, they then, asked me if I would come in, this is interesting, I would come in and meet all the staff who contributed to my my time I was in there. So I went there, it was over 30. It was including the, the, the ambulance drivers, the porters, everybody were there, you know, involved in it. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic, you know, to thank them, you know, and it was really, really a good moment that. Sadly, an hour has passed and we are out of time. So I think we're in quick fire if anyone's got anything they're desperate to ask well I'd like I've got one yeah that's it I just wanted to ask if you can go to Tesco in fact Johnny was like <laughs> ask him what it's like when he pulls up at the lights and somebody looks in the car and goes because <laughs> you drive everywhere yourself don't you yeah I'm just in Rimsel yeah if I'm going any distance I get a driver when after the the operation that I wasn't allowed to drive in the motorway mm. I wasn't allowed to drive first of all and I wasn't allowed to drink I wasn't allowed to play golf God, it was a hermit. So that's sometimes if I game of golf now and then. Mm-hmm. And um, I can drive local. I don't drive any distance. Um, I get a driver. For, Does Albert know. still drive for you the odd time? No, no. He did a few times. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I've got a driver and he's very good. Mm-hmm. But um, I went up to Scotland last week, you know, to play in a charity golf and uh, it was fantastic uh, I was able to see Walter Smith who's recovering mm-hmm. from uh, a big operation He's, so it was really good to see him and, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a lot of celebrities there when I arrived there there was on the table was Alan Shearer Ian Wright Dean Saunders and Wes Ferdinand four strikers so I started and I said well Top strikers here now, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it was good. Uh, it was very good. As for a, a friend's daughter died in the charity, and how he gets all these celebrities up, it was unbelievable. Matt with Tessie, uh, Charlie, I mean, all yeah. and uh, what do you call him? Stephen Henry, Ken Doherty. It was amazing. Nagaman Chetty for BBC, you know. It was amazing um, how you got all these celebrities to raise funds, and the the, the auction produced two hundred seventy thousand quid. The auction it was fantastic, brilliant. So I really enjoyed that. How was the golf? Agony. And funny <laughs> thing, where, you, where was that? Well, Holland. Funny thing is, I was I'm not a good golfer. No, no. 
I've no getting any rhythm or anything like that. My putting was fantastic. <laughs> Amazing, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I only two putted twice. Not bad, eh? That's not bad. That's pretty good. A magnet, the magnet in the cup. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to be excited about this, but we've got to finish and let you go. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. Okay. It's been incredible. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are on this. As a football fan, I subscribe to the theory that all football clubs stand for something different and, and have different principles and values and morals, which is why people fall in love with those clubs. If you met someone who didn't know what Manchester United was, what would you tell them it was? What does it mean to you? What do you think the, well, the key I'd principles have to are? Well, here on Saturday. <laughs> you know, I think that Manchester United, even when I was a young lad, I, I, I went to see them play in the, the Coronation Cup in 1953 when Samart was the team at the time with Royal and Pearson, you know, Aston. Uh, there were really good players at the time, so... I grew up with that, that sort of romance about Manchester United, you know. I mean, I'm sure that that, that is still there. I'm, I know it's still there. They have a romance. I think it's fantastic. They have a a, a, a supporter um, volume. It's no, I don't think any club in the world can match it. You know, you go to Asia and all over the world. I mean, when we started going to America, the first day we went, the crowds were fantastic. But after that. All you saw was red and white. Do you know what I mean? So it gathers. Is that kind of could be gather most fans? Uh, so the romance, I think, is important. The romance, of course, is about the Munich Air disaster, 1958. But the real story started how Matt Sermat rebuilt the club to win a European Cup in 1968 with eight players produced by the club. You know, it's fantastic that. You always know, sign Paddy Crand, Alex Stepney, and um, and Dennis Wall. And but Dennis didn't make the game. So I mean that is an incredible story that. That's what I think captured a lot of people, you know? Mm-hmm. And they can still I always think we, we watch United, something's gonna happen. I always think that something's gonna happen. You know, and I think, I don't think there's other clubs, a lot of clubs can match that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Cheers, Gaffer. Where's that? So Alex Ferguson has now left the room and I am still absolutely buzzing. Not many people in their lifetimes get to sit down with Sir Alex Ferguson for an hour, an hour and a half. Very privileged to be able to have done that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some of the stories are the, the different class. Oscar's story when Helen asked about his bucket list was so unexpected and yeah, so brilliant. Yeah, I just brilliant. did not expect him to yeah. say that. And he was so passionate about it, talking about going to like the Vanity Fair after party, uh, hanging out in Beverly Hills. There's it was so amazing. many more questions we wanted yeah. to ask. We just, you just don't have ever. You're never going to have enough time for no, Alex No Ferguson. way. And there's probably, I'm sure everybody who's listened to this had their own questions that they would have want asked. And I'm sure, like, there's no chance that we asked the questions everybody wanted to be asked. It's just not possible no. with, with a, a genuinely iconic human being. But we did what we could. And I can tell you that, for me, that was incredible. Yeah. Uh, also great so that Helen. was your favourite moment that's good to know yeah. noted when, yeah. when you asked about Tesco and he was talking about like giving the staff like a load of abuse for the supporting office. city yeah. that's brilliant that was amazing you know what though when I've been thinking about doing this podcast I've 
that's always the one thing that's come to my mind. I know people might find that a bit strange, but what is it like to be Sir Alex Ferguson? Yeah, it's just... Can you just go to Tesco? I think it was... I've seen him, him brought leave... brought up Tesco and Marks and Spencer's. Yeah. I didn't want to name names, but... No, sure. I've seen him leave Old Trafford, and as he's trying to get to stairs, there's just fan after fan after fan um, asking for photos and stuff, which obviously I understand why they want to take the opportunity, but, I mean, that can't be easy for him, and, it, and it, I guess, you know, it's just... The story about after the 99 Champions League final when he went for a walk. Yeah, it's amazing. I love that story. Yeah. It's incredible that for a manager that's had so much success, that two hours after the event, he moves on. Yeah. I know. You know, the lads, I mean, we've all been there and all done it. We've all celebrated. Whether it's winning something or, you know, somebody else's party, you just wanted that party to mm-hmm. prolong and carry on. But for the gaffer just to do that, and thinks, right, I need to move on now. And his focus has probably already turned into the the following season. It's, I don't know, it's just, sounds weird. That's how he did it, isn't it? Just, That's how he did it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. pull that one to bed, right, next one, Maybe move on. Maybe because he had the confidence that he was always going to win another mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose he would have looked at players as well and thought, how are they reacting to this victory? Are they focused for next year? Oh, even talking like this, yeah, there's so many more questions yeah, I wanted it's to ask. Just, it's just impossible, but... What an incredible human being. I hope you've all enjoyed listening mm-hmm. to it as much as we enjoyed Absolutely. the conversations with them. Well, should we do some emails? Okay, uh, I've got one here from Lee Hope who says, just caught up with the latest United podcast. Absolutely sensational. Albert Morgan needs another episode as he sounds like he had a hat full of stories to tell. Keep the great podcast coming, you three. Gives us fans a great window into behind the scenes of the club we love. We would love to hear more stories from the background staff. Thank you and keep safe. Cheers, Lee. Thanks, Lee. Noreen Kassan says, I have been a Man United fan all my life. I have been to Old Trafford twice, Spurs in 2010 and most recently versus Watford in February this year. I enjoyed this podcast so much. Listening to the stories behind the scenes makes the household chores almost enjoyable. Thank you so much. My dream guest would be Sir Alex. Mm. Check. (laughs) The Neville Brothers. No. Half check. One. Rory Keane and John O'Shea. And that is from Noreen and she's in County Kerry. Thank you. Thank you so much for working on it. Um, and I suppose that's it for this week. Again, hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, yeah, I hope it's lived up to your expectations. Any regrets, guys? No, I've got no time for that. No. And whilst in some ways we've reached the mountain with the podcast because we've spoken to the most important figure at this football club, but there's still so many people we haven't spoken to, so we'll keep getting those stories for you. If you've got any suggestions, then you know what to do. Email us, unitedpodcast.maynard.co.uk. The address again is maynardpodcast.co.uk. May United Pod- I don't know it's in the address <laughs> United Podcast at you got it right the first time. and we'll see you next time Ladies. <laughs>